The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So, so if you turn to this scripture once again, I'd like to talk to you for a few minutes this morning in this Father's Day celebration about the blessing of fathers who are devoted to God through our salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this psalm begins in a very fitting way with praise to the Lord as I read just a moment ago and we open our services every Sunday morning with praising God in reading of the word and also in song and I hope that you enjoy the reading of the word of God as we begin. Uh, That is the call to worship and we celebrate our Lord and We do want to worship him in word and in song. So we look again at this first verse in Psalm 112, which says, Praise ye the Lord, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. The Apostle Paul, when he wrote to his young protege, Timothy, he wrote as a father to a a young man that he nurtured in the ministry, and he gave him very good advice when he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain. Nearly 15 years ago when I became the pastor, I introduced you to a masterful theologian of the uh, 18th century. His name is John Gill, and I know some of you have become students of Gill because I hear his name often in the remarks of our our other men when they speak. But John Gill's beginning comments to, to Timothy on first Uh, Timothy 6.6, which is godliness with contentment is great gain. He said this, By godliness is not meant any particular grace, but all the graces of the Spirit of God, as faith, hope, love, fear, the whole of internal religion as it shows itself in outward worship and in all acts of holiness, of life, and conversation, and which the doctrine that is according to godliness teaches and engages to And this is gain, very great gain indeed. I think that speaks well of the advantages of godly men, advantages that most men don't seek, because I'm not talking about the gain that you make in a bank account, nor is this about uh, the interest that you get on your portfolio. It's not about getting a job in management. Although there are many Christians that enjoy those things, yet that's not the thing. Those aren't the things that bring lasting happiness to the person who is a follower of Jesus Christ. Now, the great gain that Gill expressed in that quote in Paul's verses about contentment, he said, all the graces of the Spirit of God as faith, hope, love, fear. And I want you to notice that word fear as it shows itself in outward life and in all acts of holiness. The Bible's classic example of misplaced priorities was Solomon. Solomon found himself drowning in a sea of worthless pursuits. He tried to find his contentment in wealth. You know this as we've been reading in the congregational reading the past few weeks in the book of Ecclesiastes, that he tried to find contentment in wealth He tried it by increasing the breadth of his kingdom, conquering other territories. He tried to find it in notoriety as people would come to him and seek to his wisdom. But internally, Solomon struggled. On the outside, everything looked well. Everything is fine. It can't be better because 
Solomon had all the advantages that anyone could ever wish for. But on the inside, Solomon found a different story. Finally, he came to the place that he hated life. And so he wrote in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I hated life because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me, for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. And it's with that in mind that we see a, a contrast in this psalm's expression of praise. Now, on both sides of this psalm, it's flanked by psalms that begin in exactly the same way. Praise ye the Lord. That's in the 111th. Praise ye the Lord. I will praise the Lord with my whole heart. And then in the 113th. Praise ye the Lord. Praise, O ye servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. And so what we find here is a trilogy of praise to the Lord our God, which is very fitting because the Lord our God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we find here three expressions of praise to the divine God. And the centerpiece of each of these psalms is the Lord capped off in the 113th psalm which says, Who is like unto the Lord our God? These psalms are hallelujah psalms. And in this middle one, we find the godly man. We find the man who is blessed, one who has unparalleled advantages. In fact, this psalm begins by setting the stage for godliness with contentment. Actually, the psalms themselves begin that way. Psalm number one, in the opening psalm, it says, Blessed is the man. And then here in the 112th, we see these words again, Blessed is the man. And we notice also in that very first verse of the psalm, it says, Blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. After 40 weeks of studying commandments, I scarcely think that you could miss the significance of the word commandments in the Scriptures. And what the Bible is showing us is that the Christian life, the Christian's happiness, distills into the righteousness of keeping commandments. This is righteousness, to be holy as God is holy. And we receive that enabling to holiness by our faith in Jesus Christ. And then once we have put our faith in Christ, our lives are to be consumed with holiness. This is the pursuit. This is what the godly man goes after continually, to, to serve God, to obey his commandments, because this and only this is the way that we glorify God. We are blessed by God based upon his commandments. But I believe that this text gives us another side of blessing. And that is, we are not in a relationship of quid pro quo with God. We don't serve him in order to get something. And neither are we enforced obedience to God. We are not grudgingly servants of God. The blessed man is one who never hides from God's commandments. He runs towards the commandments, just as this psalm says, the commandments are his delight. So this is not a man who's living on the edge of obedience, who has just enough piety in his life that somehow people think, well, he has a semblance of Christianity at least. No, this is the man, the godly man, is the one who is immersed in obedience to God. He finds that there is no commandment of God that he doesn't gush to fulfill. Especially, I think, about the Sabbath. The man of God loves to be in the place where God's people meet. The man of God loves to be in the worship of God's people. He's the one that says, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. 
And then notice our theme today. This man fears the Lord. That, that's the beginning of all of it. This man fears the Lord. All is prefaced upon this, that he must fear God. And his fear of God gives him such profound respect and reverence for God that rejecting the commandments of God is not possible. He will not do it. He can't think of doing anything less than what he knows is pleasing to the Lord. And so to fear God does not mean that we shake and tremble in God's presence, that we fear of being struck down by God. No, a believer in Jesus Christ doesn't fear the wrath of God because we know that God's wrath has already been satisfied in Jesus Christ. We don't serve God because we're afraid of Him in that way. The wrath of God is taken away by Christ's sacrifice as He gave Himself to the wrath of God. All of it was poured out on Him so that you and I as believers in Him would never have to experience it. You can see the hope of the righteous man in the scriptures that are written over the doors to our assembly here, out in the lobby before you come in. John 3.36, we have this scripture over the door. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, and he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth on him. I had those banners made and put over the doors as a warning for voters. Our building was used as a polling place for years, and I wanted voters to be greeted with the truth of the condition of their souls. They can't come in, they can't get out. Without seeing those banners, they would know how they stand before God. So it's either belief in God to be delivered from the wrath of God, or it's rejection of Jesus Christ to the aggravated condemnation of hell. And it's not often that we have the opportunity to give that message out to such a diverse group of people who would enter our building in order to vote. And we would still do that if the government hadn't guaranteed that there would be harassment to those who oppose the homosexual agenda. And so we learned that if we use our building for any other purpose than worship service, we risk the intervention of the government into our affairs. And it's one of those times when the government's right hand had no idea what the left hand was doing. Now they can no longer use our building because we're not going to let them control the internal affairs of the church. So the godly man, what I'm saying, the godly man is not terrorized by the Lord, but his fear is a fear of respect. He is not victimized by God. I heard this from someone uh, not long ago, that someone claimed that the Berean Baptist Church is, makes, we're sort of like making victims out of people. We're too strict and those kinds of things. No, we're not. Do you feel victimized by God? I certainly don't. God set us free from the real terrorist. And that's the tyranny of sin that we escape when we trust in God. Uh, Satan is the taskmaster of ruination and our faith in Christ has enabled us to escape him. But we move on from that. This psalm begins with a word of praise. It begins with a beatitude. The word beatitude means a blessing. And this is a blessing for the man who is righteous to respect God. Now I want to observe today some of the blessings that we find in the text. And for the sake of time, we're not able to look into every aspect of this psalm, every verse to break it down. Uh, but I feel that I must talk to you a little bit about where this psalm came from. Why this psalm? 
So we're going to take just a little bit of time to talk about that for a minute. It's important for us to know why the psalm is written. Now, originally, this was encouragement for somebody. Somebody, and sometime, needed this. Some man, some group of men, needed this encouragement from the Lord. So why were these particular words written? Well, I'd like you to turn back just for a moment your Bibles to Psalm chapter 52, the 52nd Psalm. And I want you to look at the first words in this psalm. Do you know what the first words of Psalm 52 are? Most of us would say, Why boastest thyself in mischief, O mighty man? Are those the first words of this psalm? Not really. The Hebrew text begins with the caption. To the chief musician, Maskell. Maskell means it's a psalm of wisdom. And then it goes on to say, a psalm of David, when Doeg the Edomite came and told Saul, and said unto him, David is come into the house of Ahimelech. Now rarely do we read the captions to the psalm, but that is actually the first part of it. That's the beginning of the Hebrew text. And that caption gives the reason that the psalm was written. So you could take this particular psalm and you can follow the story. You can go to 1 Samuel chapters 21 and 22 and there you'll learn the story of Doeg the Edomite and how he related, interacted with David in this particular, as this psalm describes. Now Psalm 51 is one that's a little bit more familiar to it. In the caption of this psalm it says, uh, it was written when David went, went into Nathan the prophet, or Nathan the prophet came to him, rather, when David went into Bathsheba. And then what follows is, are those words that you recognize, the lament of David, the sorrow of David, the repentance of David, asking for God's forgiveness. But most of the Psalms don't give us that much information. Some do, most don't. So what about this 112th Psalm? Well, we're very confident that the Psalm is a psalm of the remnant that had returned from captivity in Babylon. And they returned to Israel to find that Jerusalem was destroyed. The walls had been broken down. Uh, they, they returned to a temple that lay in ruins. This once marvelous temple of Solomon was utterly wasted. They came back to poverty and to opposition in the rebuilding. And it would have been much simpler if all they'd done was just to return to Babylon. It wasn't really worth it, it seemed, to be in Israel. But their hearts were not in Babylon. And so in the 137th Psalm, also a, time, a psalm of this period, they said, by the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down. Yea, we wept when we remembered Zion. The God that they worshipped was not in Babylon. So there was no peace and happiness where they couldn't worship Jehovah God. So this is a message to us that you're never going to find happiness in the world. A Christian can't do it. You can't turn back to the world after you become a believer in Jesus Christ. It doesn't work. Blessed men are happy men. And godly men find their delight in the Word of God and obedience to God. Now, let's look for just a moment at the, at the blessings in this psalm. What does the blessed man have? Well, first... The blessed man has the blessing of comfort. The blessing of comfort. This is Father's Day, and appropriately, verse number 2 begins with children. But fathers delight in their children. And I am speaking to godly fathers. I, I know that some of you may not be able to relate. You never felt that your father delighted in you. 
And I'm happy that as good Christian men that you're determined that you won't repeat the sins of your fathers and so you dote on your children and you try to make up for that missing childhood that you think you should have had. And we're proud of our children. Even when they don't always do what we want them to do, and many times they don't, but still we love our children. And and we're especially comforted when we have a child that will return love and respect to us. That, that's a child that really is something special to you. Now, my relationship with my dad is that uh, I loved him so much that I feared that I would do anything that would cause him to be disappointed in me. I'm sure at times that I did. I have no doubt about it. But I'm happy to think, to believe that my father is now in heaven and that he sees that I'm trying to do what he did, to follow in his footsteps, to try to deliver the word of God without compromise to preach the God's Word to you, to faithfully preach it. And I want to turn this focus around for just a moment to think about how godliness and how your fear of the Lord as a man and your commitment to obedience turns into a blessing for your children. The child of a godly father receives much benefit from a father like that. So the godly man, first of all, is a blessing to his children. A godly man is a blessing to his children. Here we see in verse number 2, it says, they will be mighty. Now the Hebrew indicates that they will be mighty warriors. In the Old Testament context, a godly man had godly children who were valiant in war. They would rise to the occasion when there were threats against the nation, and they would fight for their country and for their God. We might not think in those terms today, But we do certainly want our children, we hope that our children will be patriotic. We hope that they love their country. We do hope that they will defend it if if called upon. But the main thought here is that the children of a godly father are good in character. I mean, overall, a godly father will produce in his children a godly character that his children are recognized as upright and trustworthy. The Bible is teaching us that there is a link between a godly father and godly children, which means you need to be very careful about how you raise your children in the example that you set before them. If you teach your children that other activities are as good as church, when they get older, other activities will be as good as church. Exodus 25 has a very solemn warning about this. It says that God visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Now let me explain to you what that means. It does not mean that the sins of the fathers will be borne by the children, they will be punished for those. It means that a child is likely to follow in that father's footsteps so that his sins become generational sins. That he's produced a bad atmosphere for his children and so they become choked in uh, in their godliness by the pollution that parents allow them to live in. And so your children, your grandchildren, will live in it as well. This is what the Bible says. Your children are not going to teach their children to respect God and the Sabbath and strict obedience to it if you are not the start of that. But you turn that around and you find that an uncompromising father, a father who delights in God's commandments, that if you do that, the third and fourth generations will serve the Lord. That's the contrast that we have. Now, are you looking for absolutes? 
Are you looking for some kind of a promise from me that it always turns out this way? And so you have objections and you can offer the exceptions to this. It doesn't always turn out this way. Well, fine, but I'll tell you this. There's no chance of it happening the other way. Unless by the marvelous grace of God overriding bad examples, does that change? You know, I love to see my grandchildren reciting memory verses. I love to see my grandchildren when they really love to go to church. When I go to San Diego, my grandkids have never said to me, Papa, would you stay over on Sunday and take us to SeaWorld? Not once did they ever say that, but countless times they've said to me, can you stay over and go to church with us? And can I sit by you in church? And they would get excited about that. Can I sit by you in church? And uh, all 47 of them want to sit by me. It's impossible to do. But, but they want to. They want to sit by me in church. Well, this is, this is an exception for ungodly parents, unfaithful parents, that they will produce godly children. It's only by the marvelous grace of God that a person comes to Christ after living in a godless home. I know that some of you are examples of it. It happened to you. You got through that. But I'll tell you, that's by the grace of God. And so I would ask you as a Christian today, do you want to risk your children? Do you want to risk them by teaching them something different? I hope not. But not only is godliness a family blessing, but a godly man is also a blessing to his companions. It says, the generation of the upright shall be blessed. Now, primarily, that's a, a follow-up to the previous. It refers to the man's children. But we'd have to ask, aren't these, this man's children, aren't they also members of society? And society is influenced by godly people. The Scripture says, Jesus said to us, you are the salt and light of the world. You are an influence. Godliness is uplifting. Godliness improves society. I, I think you know how much I'm against dragging government and politics into the church. I don't expect that democracy will bring peace to the world. I don't think that's going to happen. Morality has never been the government's forte. And we only need to look at the private lives of our leaders. Only there is no such thing as private lives of our leaders, is there? Everything is public now. Everything can be tweeted out. In this age, there is no such thing as the private life. So... Immorality, though, when discovered, used to keep people out of the office, out of offices. It used to keep them out. Now it seems that perversion means we are progressive. As bad as we can be, the more progressive we are. Nobody really cares. The Scripture says, Woe to those that call evil good and good evil. And if you haven't noticed this, the government has a really hard time telling the difference between good and evil. So, no, I don't expect that, that change will come to the world through the government. It's the church of Christ preaching the gospel of Christ that is the agent of change. But a church that is no good for the world is a church that is no good. If we surrender ourselves to the world, we're a church of no good. And, and let, me, uh, let me make this clear, understand this, that I use the word church. This is not an ethereal principle. The church is the people. And this means you. And living an ungodly life is not a good influence on anybody. And so what we can't do is we can't change 
2,000 years of church orthodoxy by saying, oh, well, things are different now. God sees things differently than he did before. God is now tolerant of immoral lifestyles. Neo-orthodoxy, not biblical orthodoxy, says that we are to accept things that have always been known as disgustingly evil. But I want you to understand this. There are lifestyles that are repulsive to God. And I'll not speak for God on this. I'll let God speak for himself. You just read his word. Read what he says. But America is brainwashed in tolerance. And the word tolerance is not even the word to use anymore. That's not the correct word. They don't like tolerance because that sounds like, well, you think it's bad, but you're willing to live with it. So they don't like tolerance anymore. Now the word is acceptance. You must accept them. And they're satisfied with nothing but acceptance. Now understand something, that the American church is an anomaly in Christianity. Because across the world, the things that take place here in Christian churches is unthinkable. They don't accept it. I know sometimes we think, well, what's happening is the church is being swallowed up with all the evil, and so the best that we can do is just join with them. We have no voice left, so we might as well join with them. But understand that America is in a hole by itself on this. That across the world, people are still standing for moral lifestyles. They've not given in. And here's a, here's a, a little secret for you that's not so secret. True Christianity in this country has not given in either. When you're talking about the true church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't want to confuse that with the one that permits immorality. The church that's no longer an influence for good in society. So why is that a problem in America? Because there are too many still suffering under this delusion that somehow America is a Christian nation. People who believe the government will change us, and it's the job of the church to influence legislation, dig the hole deeper and deeper. What have we accomplished by throwing the church into lobbying efforts? Is there anybody here who can raise your hand and say, well, it's obvious the church is winning this battle. No, the church gets further behind. We lose and we lose and we lose because we've looked to the government to solve problems instead of preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I could do a whole series on that. We could talk for a long time, and, and I have done it, somewhat of a series on that. Refer to the series we did on church history and see what did church-state government ever do for the Lord's people. Well, we need to go on. Secondly, in this psalm, we find for the godly man the blessing of charity. And, and we are connected to the first point in this, that God's people are a blessing to others. Society is helped by maintaining faith and obedience. Look at verses 5 and 9. Here we see the character of the righteous. Verse 5, A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Verse 9, He hath dispersed, he hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Now, I am compelled to comment on the last part of verse 9. His horn shall be exalted with honor. Now that connects us with Mother's Day, if you remember Hannah's Hallelujah, where she spoke of horns, not French horns, not trumpets, not tubas like Benjamin over there, not that. And by the way, Benjamin's got, is, is, is got that blow 
flow into something look. I mean, that, you know, you, you get strength in your lips by, by doing those kinds of things. Uh, but not those kinds of horns. That's not what it's talking about. Uh, the Bible means, when it says horns, it's talking about the horns of animals. That's the strength of the animal. That's how he protects himself. That's how he fights. And so what we find here is the righteous man's hallelujah, his praise, his horn is exalted with honor. What is the blessing of a generous man? His generosity is returned. He's favored by others. People speak well of him. Now, whether right or wrong, there are many indiscretions that are overlooked by, uh, because a man is generous. Philanthropy pays good dividends. So you take a rich guy and let him throw a lot of money at a cause, a scoundrel then becomes a saint. But the motives for charity with the righteous man are different because he gives because the Lord has told him to. He gives because the Bible says to love your neighbor. He gives because it is right. We give because it's the right thing to do. Sometimes it's hard for us to give to the poor because we aren't too sure who is actually poor. I mentioned this in our study of the commandments, that we should be generous, but we have to be honest about it. The, the poor in America are much different than the poor in first century Jerusalem or any place at any time. We are unique in this time and place. Poverty here is much different than someone who lives in the Sudan. There aren't any swelled bellies here unless it's from drinking too much beer. And, and children are not infested with chiggers here like Pastor Buongo has to treat in Kenya. Now those of you who get the church email, let me just read this to you. Brother Gary sent this out from Brother Mongo as an update. And here we can talk about hunger and poverty. Gary says, he asked uh, Pastor Mongo, he says, called him and asked that we continue to pray for the believers in Lodwar region of Kenya. Lodwar is in the northwest corner of Kenya, adjacent to Sudan and Uganda. It's been experiencing a severe drought for about five years. In just one of the several churches that Brother Mongo oversees, there have been 23 children orphaned in just the last two months. Water is scarce. There are no animals living to use as a source for food. And the scorching heat has claimed many lives. Pastor Mongo has made several trips to that region, bringing as much food as he can. But it is a treacherous journey. There we're looking at poverty. There we're looking at true starvation and people who really need help. Now we thank the Lord that our forefathers had the foresight to want to build a nation that would eliminate disease and hunger and that wouldn't turn a blind eye to the poor. We have charitable organizations. We have government programs. But unfortunately, we're confused about the poor because some think it's more profitable to be poor. It's better to not work and draw the check. You know, it turns my stomach when I watch television or read in the papers interviews with people that bellyache about their rights. Oh, I have a right to a government check. And they're angry because the government can't tax more blood out of turnips to feed them and, and keep them up. And we just have to ask the question, when is it your right to have me feed you? 
We are a nation of ingratitude. So it makes us leery of helping others. We see a homeless person and we can't separate the needy from those who make it their business to avoid work. I believe in helping the needy. But do you know in 15 years as pastor of the church, countless people have come here asking for money, calling for money, sending letters for money. But I can count on half of one hand the times that a person said to me, if you can help me, I'll try to work for it. Is there some work that I can do for it? And the mere suggestion that we would ask anybody who calls and asks for money, could you do some work? We could use some cleanup around the church. Just the mere suggestion of it's like pouring salt on a slug. Have you ever seen what God does with poverty? See how God told Israel to do what? Leave the grain in the field. Leave the grapes on the vine. Leave the olives on the tree. Why? So they can go get it. So they can work for it. You leave it. You're generous to them, but let them work for that. Well, a church, a church like ours, and this is not criticism at all, we tend to send our money overseas because we're convinced those are people that truly need it. Like Pastor Mwango, we know he truly needs it. Uh, last month we sent $4,000 to Pastor Bouquets in the Philippines because his people cannot afford to build a church building that won't be blown over by a house fan. So, do you know what his letters say? When he writes to us, he always starts with something like this. Pray for more souls to be one. If you have trouble discerning who is needy, look for somebody in the church. Whatever you do, don't hoard up your money because God blesses those who bless others. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. That's what it says. Give away. Give away. And God will replenish the supply. He blesses you to bless others. Thirdly, and I'll close with this, thirdly is the blessing of courage. The blessing of courage. Charles Spurgeon preached a, a great message on this text. Uh, I don't know if you can find a, a sermon of Spurgeon's that's not a fabulous display of wisdom. But he preached on this text during a, during a terribly tough time. Uh, in his day, they were experiencing a, an outbreak of cholera in London. Cholera is a, a terrible disease that killed thousands of people in America and Europe in the late 19th century. And Spurgeon's congregation was decimated with cholera. At the same time, Spurgeon dealt with Roman Catholicism that had crept into Anglicanism, which is the state church of England. And you might know this, that there was a time when the, when the Baptist Spurgeon could find some camaraderie with Anglicanism because of their teachings on the doctrine of salvation, that it was correct. But at this time, Anglicanism was being infiltrated by Catholicism and the gospel of Christ in that church was being destroyed. And then besides that, the Baptist Union, we're talking now about the Baptist groups of people there in what was called the Baptist Union, uh, at that time, modernism was creeping in. Textual criticism was, was creeping in. And the Bible was no longer to be, believed to be the, the inerrant word of God. And still on top of that, evolution was gaining ground. Spurgeon stood against evolution when there were men like C.I. Schofield who made accommodations for it. Schofield gave it hope by suggesting that there is a gap 
between Galatians, or rather Genesis chapter 1-1 and 1-2, and Schofield proposed that in that gap you could find all the eons of time that you need for evolution. But Spurgeon would have none of that. And that's because he knew to undermine the Bible is to work your way into destroying the gospel. And in the midst of all of that turmoil, Sermon uh, Spurgeon preached on this text about remaining steadfast in the Lord. And he spoke about being a righteous man who fights every tactic of the devil at every turn. He was facing it everywhere that he went. And he said this is what the righteous man does. He stands strong on God's word. What do we learn from this? There are three encouragements I want you to see in the text. First of all, we are to fear God, but we are not to fear adversity. Fear God, but do not fear adversity. The seventh verse. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. Now a godly man knows that in the Scriptures he will find no promise from God that there will be no adversity. In fact, he finds the opposite. He finds that God says, you were made for this. You will face adversity. Peter and Paul said, expect it. Peter said, 1 Peter 4, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you, but rejoice inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad with, also with exceeding joy. If ye be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye, for the spirit of glory and of God resteth upon you. On their part is evil spoken of, but on your part is glorified. Peter's approach is interesting, isn't it? If you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are ye. What in the world is wrong with Peter? How did he say that? Happy are ye if you reproach for the name of Christ, if you suffer for him? He says you are happy. What? Makarios. Blessed. The very same word that we find in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus gave the Beatitudes. Blessed, blessed, Peter said. Sounds kind of strange. But he said, welcome adversity for the cause of Christ. Paul said, Philippians 1.29, For unto you it is given in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. So problems, opposition, hatred... That's not strange stuff for us. This is not unusual. There's no need to be shook up because trouble is in the world. That's our life. And so what does a righteous man do when he hears bad news? When the economy sours, when the investments tank, when there's sickness and death in the family, when his own health is failing, when friends add to his misery, what does he do? At one time there was a righteous man who didn't experience all those things over a lifetime. He experienced them in a very short time. The man was Job. He lost all of his wealth. He lost all of his children when a tornado came and destroyed the house where his children were eating. Then he said, was well, there anything else that can happen? Anything bad that can happen? Well, Job, yes, there is. He was stricken from head to foot with painful boils. And then his friends came to cheer him up and to comfort him. And they said, Job, you're a terrible sinner. It's a wonder God hasn't killed you already. Financial ruin, death of his family, loss of his health, desertion of friendly support. Job got it all, boom, 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 just like that, like an anvil falling from a 50-story building right on top of his head. But the Bible says he never cursed God. 
But then his wife came and heaped on more misery. She felt no blessings in adversity at all. And she said, Job, curse God and die. Thank you, Mrs. Job, for your encouragement. That's what he faced. Job wouldn't do it. He was a righteous man. He did not fear adversity, no matter what was thrown at him. The righteous man trusts God because he knows God will never deal unjustly with him. This is what Abraham said, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the righteous man needs to approach his life in that way because our salvation births us to adversity. That's the territory of the godly. In fact, if you don't feel it, then you need to be aware Satan doesn't bother people that are on his side. If you feel adversity, that's one way that you know you're a true believer in Jesus Christ. Next, he fears God, but he knows not to fear the enemy. He does not fear the enemy. Verse number 8, his heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. Now, if you look back to the 111th Psalm, that psalm is an exact parallel to 112. It begins the same. It has the same length. It has identical stanzas. It's an acrostic like the 112th. It has 22 lines in the original Hebrew text, each line beginning with a successive letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Verse number 6. He has showed his people the power of his works that he may give them the heritage of the heathen. You know what that is? That's a reference to Israel's victory over the Egyptians and over the Canaanites. There were miracles that God used to bring them through. There was no fear in Israel when they were righteous. And so you read Joshua in victory after victory after victory, and there is no recording of loss of life among the Israelites. And that question has to be asked, did they ever lose anybody in battle? Well, interestingly, maybe we have an indication they didn't, because in the battle against Ai, where they had broken God's commandment, there were 36 men that were killed, and that said specifically. Among the thousands of all the peoples that were they killed, there were 36 Israelites that were killed, and God notes that in the text. The sun stood still, hailstones fell on their enemies, Every king, north and south, was defeated. Fortified cities with great walls fell. Jericho was fastly shut up so that nobody can go in, but that was a cakewalk for Israel. The righteous man knows who do we fear when God is on our side. Oh, we ask, is that still true in the New Testament? Does that kind of a promise exist for us? Hebrews 13, 5 and 6. Let your conversation be without covetousness and be content with such things as ye have. For he has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, so that we may boldly say, The Lord is my helper. I will not fear what man shall do unto me. You know, a pastor knows this. He relies on this verse, on these scriptures. I have no fear of those that are outside the church. I have no fear of anybody on the outside. That part never bothers me. Maybe someday it will. Maybe someday, I don't know, but not right now. So who are the ones that are most likely to hurt me in the ministry? It's the opposition on the inside. It's people in here, and it's always been that way in the church. You find that, that warning uh, from the apostles, the writers of the New Testament, about those that are creep into the church. So a bigger fear of Satan's destruction is not the government, and it's not the community, it's the inside person. And let me tell you something about that. If I stick to the truth, you're not going to hurt me. The inside person is not going to hurt me. 
there may be someone in our church that has been marginalized, who has no influence in the church. You know why? Because they decided that they were going to be against the pastor. And so now they're on the sidelines, they're marginalized, and people don't pay much attention to them any longer. So if you think you can hurt me, don't try. You know why? Because it's not me that stands for me. It's men and women directed by the Holy Spirit that won't let you open your mouth. So this is what the godly man expects. You, as a man in the pew, you live a holy and righteous life. Don't fear what anybody can do to you. God is on your side. Godly fathers don't fear to stand for the truth. Psalm 118, verse 6, The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Then you might want to mark down Psalm 2. I don't have time to read it. I wish we had time, but you can see that. Godly men, godly fathers stand for the Lord because they know who God is. Now finally, in his courage, he knows this. He knows this. Don't fear for lack of ability. Not adversity, not the enemy. Don't fear for any lack of ability. Verse number 8. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he see his desire upon his enemies. Now, pay attention here. He'll not stop until he sees his enemies conquered beneath his feet. And you may ask, how is that? How could I ever see my enemies conquered beneath my feet? Well, consider this. That the enemies of the righteous man are the same enemies as the enemies of Christ. Is that not right? Our enemies are one and the same. We fight against the very same people. Who else would they be except the enemies of Christ? The righteous man then has the same Holy Spirit that rested upon Jesus Christ. And what's the end for Christ? Well, Peter can get this one for you. Acts 2, 34-36, For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou in my right hand, until I make thine enemies thy footstool. Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom he crucified, both Lord and Christ. And what happens to our enemies? Verse 10 of Psalm 112 tells us, The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. Does that not give you courage to know that your enemies will melt away? These are some of the blessings of Psalm 112. A father who fears God receives the comfort of a good family. He's recognized for a heart of charity. He blesses all who know him and he is blessed with courage. A godly man delights in the commandments. So look what righteousness does for him. He doesn't go the way of Solomon. He doesn't end up there. He doesn't hate life. As hard as it may be, as difficult living for the Lord may be, as difficult the times that you go through every single day, you don't hate life. You love the life that God has given because you have the opportunity to serve Him. God gives that peace in your heart. The Holy Spirit there is to comfort you in all adversity. Solomon at one time had it right. Proverbs 3, 1 and 2, he wrote, My son, forget not my law, but let thine heart keep my commandments for length of days and long life and peace they shall add unto thee. And then after all the futility found in the world, 
that we read that we've read about in Ecclesiastes, Solomon finally came down to the end, and he says this in the twelfth chapter, verse thirteen: "Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man." After he tried everything there was to try, found no happiness in the world, he returned where? To the commandments. Fear God and keep the commandments. That's where we'll find happiness. So the godly man fears God with the right respect, the respect that God is due, and the godly man desires to do the whole duty of man. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you now thanking you again for fathers. Most of all, we want to thank, thank you, Heavenly Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ, and giving him as a gift to this world. We thank you, Lord, for the salvation that we find in him. We're sinners unjustly deserving of your grace and your mercy. But we thank you, Lord, that this is what you did for us as a loving father, gives to his children, so you gave to us the gift of your Son. Lord, I pray for fathers here today, that as believers in Christ, we would always turn to you and seek righteousness, because that's where we find our happiness. And then for a father here today, or any man or any woman who doesn't know you as Savior, none of the things that I've said today are guarantees or helps or can be counted on by anyone who doesn't know Jesus Christ as Savior. We must... Give our hearts to him in faith, repentance and faith and obedience as Lord. And we just pray, Father, you'd open someone's heart to that gospel today. We give you the praise for all of this. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.